This is Eric Lutie, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I'm going through a series which I'm cobbling together as I go. I I used to teach American history, and I've taught the Civil War. Uh, So I have this unique, eclectic background. I used to teach constitutional law. And so you blend that together and stick me in July. It's July now. July 2020 with what's taking place in our world, and it creates some unique fireworks display. No we just had July 4th last night, maybe that's why I'm saying it, in, in the soul of Eric Ludi, there's responses, not always what you would expect. In other words, to me, I expect a darkened world that lives according to the flesh that has rejected God to do exactly what they're doing. That doesn't mean that there isn't grief in the process. It is very grievous to me to see people trample upon truth and to see it fall in the streets and to see the church, in a sense, in many regards right now, participate in it. What I'm seeing is a, is a division amongst the church which may be healthy. I know that sounds funny because I've been speaking even in my Daily Thunder. Uh, my Friday edition was Casablanca, which is about the bringing the allies together for a, a common purpose. It's a, it's a powerful message on what I, we used to call the Ellerslie experiment of how does the body of Christ work together even though we have different heritages. However, there are certain points that we must bring definition to. I've oftentimes called them the five fingers. Uh, if you've heard uh, you know, us at Ellerslie talk, we'll talk about the Word of God and its five expressions. The Word of God in text, which is the Bible. The Word of God in person, which is Jesus Christ. The Word of God in action, which is what he does when he comes to this earth in that body. He is going to perform what is typically classified as the work of the cross. Now, it is more than that, but that's the summation. He is going to bring victory and triumph in and through his body, in and through his labors. Then you're going to have the effects of all that, which is the word of God in us and the invasion of the Holy Spirit into the dwelling place known as the human body. Extraordinary. It's the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And then you're going to have the word of God through us. There's nothing worse than someone receiving this grand gift and then bottling it up and keeping it for themselves. It's meant to be shared. And if it's not shared, it actually contaminates the entire vessel. It is meant to be given. You're not forgiven and then don't give forgiveness. That doesn't work. You don't receive love and then not give love. You don't receive kindness and not give kindness. It is essential that it's a flow through. So if you remove the godness from any of these, like if you remove the godness from the Bible, oh, it's just a work of men, then what you do is you create a catastrophic domino effect You remove the godness from the Bible and suddenly you've removed the godness from Jesus Christ. If you remove the godness from Jesus Christ, you remove the godness from his work on the cross. And now it's merely a man hanging on a cross? What happens when you remove the godness from the book, from the man, and from the cross? You no longer have divine salvation. Now it's up to man to save himself which is why you see the church rallying around these very basic tenets throughout history, is the godness of that book equates to the godness of that man, because it speaks very bluntly about the godness of that man, 
and the godness of that work on the cross. It is God who saves and all alone God who saves. There is only one means of salvation, only one means of redemption, and that is that God-man on that cross as God doing a work for us. It's called grace. God working for us. How are you saved? Because God worked for you. And our confidence is in that. And so in this grand dynamic, when we begin to see people diminish the word of God in text, which is what we see right now, we see the church saying, oh, I recognize the Bible says things that are offensive to this culture. Yeah, I wish God hadn't done that. Yeah, and they begin to distance themselves socially from the Bible. Whoa, 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 stop. Stop right there. What's happening? It's the breakdown of truth right there. And so as a result, it's like you either stand with the word of God or you don't. Let's make a choice here because a Christian is built in the word. They have confidence in the text because that text is going to speak of the man. And they have confidence in that man's work on the cross. That's where their faith rests. That's what Christianity is and it cannot be defined any other way. And so when you begin to deviate from the word of God in text and you begin to diminish it, dismiss it, and call it socially uh, buck-toothed, and you don't want to be associated with its buck-toothedness, you have a problem with me. And you have a problem with us. We are the body of Christ. We are rallying around one singular point. The book, which reveals the man, which reveals what that man did. And we say, I stake my eternity right there and I'm willing to die for that. So we have a separation that is taking place right before our eyes. We see an ashamedness that is coming out of people all over the place. Christian leaders, it's like they're ashamed for what the church is, how the church functions, the fact that the church has done this or that. Something is wrong. We as the church do not apologize for the word of God. We do not apologize for the man Jesus. We do not apologize for what he has done. We stand firm and resolute, and we are willing to, as the title says, go into the savage wilderness and stand boldly and resolute, knowing full well that it will cost us our lives. Christianity throughout history recognizes up front it costs you your life to truly function as a Christian. You do know that our lead agent, our captain of salvation, is our model, and he to boldly declare the truth of God in this culture, to shine the light, laid down his life. And you do know that his emissaries, the 12 apostles, Every single one of them, and I know you could say, well, what about John? He didn't actually die. He, I think he died of natural causes. Yeah, but he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil before that and was pulled out unscathed. So the fact that the guy lived is more supernatural than anything else. Every single one of them was martyred, if you want to say it that way. Okay, John may have. We actually don't know how John died. We're assuming old age. But every single one of them faced the top-notch level, top-highest level of physical consequence for standing for this truth. Who are we following? Have we, be, have we befuddled our own minds into thinking that we serve a God that doesn't lead us in this direction, that isn't self-expending, that isn't willing to expend his own body for the sake of love? We must recall our history. So when we see History being overwritten and revised, we need to hold on to it because history 
is crucial for us to remember. We represent a culture here, a, a nation, that is so highly irregular and unusual in the course of history. There's no nation like it. In fact, if you were going to say there's, there's two nations throughout history that stand apart in the fact that God so supernaturally orchestrated them, you'd say Israel, and then if you pause and say, is there another one? America. That's how astounding our history is. It is decidedly supernatural. And so to see it overwritten and thrown out is something that I want us to at least check before it goes into the trash can. As the church, we do not heed American history as our Bible. We do not heed the Constitution of the United States as if it's a divine document. But we show respect and honor and appreciation and gratitude for what God has done when a people builds its history upon the premises of that text, upon the statements in that text, and you see the outcomes and how it has changed the world. Which is why, for me, it's important to remember in a time when everyone else seems to want to forget. So into the savage wilderness. We have been going through, in fact, I spent the last three weeks strangely hanging out on Christopher Columbus. I don't know why in the world I'm hanging out with Christopher Columbus. He's, you know, and it's funny because I'm not a Columbus fan, just as a review, I'm not a Columbus fan. There are certain attributes of Columbus I thought were amazing. His dogged faith in believing that there was actually land out there, I mean, it's truly remarkable. Outside of that, there's not a lot of other bragging points. His motive was good. His motive was to share the light of Christ. It's impressive. I don't know that he led one person to the Lord. And in, because of Columbus and his passion for gold, you're going to see an era known as the conquistadors that is going to sweep through Central and South America. And it is going to bring with it great barbarism. It is going to bring forth basically genocide. It is terrible. And I have no vote in the positive of it. That does not mean I don't esteem what God is doing in and through this. In other words, God is bringing about a providence. There is a discovery of a land. And even though there's going to be an evil that is going to be perpetrated, God is going to set apart for himself a space of territory. And he is going to work mightily. And that's what we're going to see as a division between south and the north. We're going to see God set his hands upon it. He's going to shed his grace on this territory and he has a purpose for it. And it's not the conquistador purpose. It's going to be something different. So I went through, the Spanish are going to sweep into Central and South America. The conquistadors want gold. And so they're going to look at the northern country. They're going to see New Mexico. They're going to see Arizona. They're going to see Southern California and they're going to call it God-forsaken territory. I don't know how anyone could call Southern California God-forsaken territory. However, the reason is it doesn't have gold, and it looks like desert to them. They have no interest in going there. And so the conquistadors are going to stay south, but the missionaries that come with them are going to go north. Why? There's no gold there. Why would you go there? Because there's lost souls there. And so you're going to see America begin with a very different, or what we understand as the United States, is going to start with a very different beginning then Central and South America as far as the European influence. It is going to be one of finding lost souls instead of finding lost gold. Very different. Now, what's funny is in the revisionist history, it all gets blended together. And so the conquistadors, that's our history. Well, actually, 
yeah, I, I see where you're, where you're trying to go with that. However, it's not. We do have plenty of bad people that came into this country. Don't get me wrong. However, you're going to see because of the lack of gold or what they perceive, I mean, because there is going to be a California gold rush in the future. There is going to be a Colorado gold rush in the future. So gold will be found in the United States and it will create another wave of corruption. But in the beginning, there's this pure strain that is coming through. You know that the, the people in this country, the indigenous, we know them as, you know, in history as Indians, now Native Americans, that you're going to oftentimes recognize that there is a, an empathy for the way that they were treated, and I, I get that, and I think that there's much mistreatment of the indigenous. Uh, and so I have no problem in saying, yeah, you know, that was handled improperly. However, it's not just a total blanket story. What we have is a people that is lost, and they're living in darkness. The depths of depravity and the abominations taking place on this continent before the light of the gospel came were so extreme. In fact, at the time, they would say it's the most abominable things that had ever been heard of in all of world history up to the time were taking place in the darkness of this country. And so when you put on your Christian lens instead of your cultural correct lens, you recognize that this people group, these people groups are in desperate need of light. If we were to look at Africa, because it's easier for us to study African missions in that regard, and if you study the different people like David Livingston and what he's going to encounter, and then you're going to see the different missionaries that are going to come to the coastline and then risk it all because no missionary's ever gone inland. And they're going to risk it all. Like Mary Slessor's the first woman to ever go inland. She's going to go further than any guy had gone. And what they're going to run into is so abominable. When, a, when a, any people group lives in darkness and has no light shining, well, then what happens is it inevitably goes towards cannibalism. It inevitably goes to, towards ritual sacrifice to appease gods or satanic powers. And so what you're going to see is extreme behaviors where parents kill their young. Well, who would do that? How, how could any culture ever do that? You see, when depravity begins to reign, you see certain patterns that are always present. When you look at missionaries in Papua New Guinea, you're going to see such depravity, such cannibalism, such ritual sacrifice. Well, it's the same thing. Everywhere you go, it's like different languages, different clothing, different weird things that they do to their body, but they're all doing weird things to their body. They're all dressed sort of like that, and they're all living like this. Very interesting. In other words, Satan's pattern is predictable. We are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. This country is no different. Before the light of Christ shone in this land, it was a dark and depraved place. And the gospel is going to come to it. Did other things come? Yes, they did. However, we can't forget the truth of the matter. So the French missionaries, the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. So you have the Franciscans that are basically going to come up into the southwest. Uh, and so New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, you're going to see a lot of missions being established. And they're going after souls. That's what they're going after. And then you're going to see this territory called New France that is going to be built. So you have the span. Every one of the European countries is trying to gain their colonies. They're trying to claim their territory in this new, new land. And so France is no different. However, 
the Jesuits are a very interesting people. They, they've received a, a, a bad rap over the years. There's no doubt about it. There's the Protestants and the, and the Jesuits, which is a Catholic, uh, you know, out, out uh, growth, have not gotten along well. And so you've seen entire strategies to dismiss the entire history of the Jesuits. I don't want to do that. I actually have a very high regard for this wave of history. It's fascinating. I'm not Catholic in any regard, and I do think that, uh, that Catholic thinking, which is going to put the Pope above the Word of God, is actually very dangerous, and I'm always going to want to put the Word of God in text higher than any man. Okay, so that's maybe my Protestant roots speaking, but at the same time, if you're going to understand American history, you need to understand the Jesuits, because most of America is going to be discovered by them. And as a result, when you recognize their motive, their motive is to find people that don't know Jesus and share him with them. This is like our history, guys. This is a profound baseline that we have. Now, there were trappers and fur traders that are going out there, and they don't get any credit for discovering anything because they, they weren't literate typically. They weren't writing it down what was taking place, whereas the Jesuits are highly educated, and they're going to come in and start writing everything down. So as a result, they're going to probably get the credit in history for the discovery but they also did go. They are coming from the most posh, highly educated culture at the time, France. And they're going to leave their comforts. These are some of the most highly educated, most sturdy intellectuals, some of the most bold and brave people you've ever met. And they are going to come to this wilderness, this savage wilderness, and lay down their lives. Extreme stories of giving up everything, for Jesus Christ. They're going to come out of this line. So it's intriguing. By the way, Jesuits is a slur that they're going to adopt. Have you ever noticed that throughout Christian history you have a whole bunch of names that are very, that originally are negative and then finally the group says, you know what, let's just call ourselves that. That's how Christian, even the word Christian is that too. The Jesuit individual aim to purify the soul from wrong affections and worldly conduct discover God's specific personal direction before choosing an area of particular service, and then consecrate the mind and will to the service of the Creator under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know what? You leave the Pope out of it, and all of us are like, yeah, that sounds really good. Overall, you're going to see a behavior in these men that is very admirable. I'm not saying all of them were great any more than I would look at every Christian today and say, yeah, they're all great, they're just Christian. In other words, you're going to have all varieties, sizes, shapes, colors, and, you know, uh, and morality levels. But uh, overall, you're going to see some amazing men uh, step forward in the history of our country. So the Jesuit corporate aim, this is what their aim is. And I can't argue. I think it's a really good aim. Take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the darkest corners of the earth. Peter Marshall is going to say of the Jesuits, by dint of the intensive self-discipline required of the Jesuits, these individuals turned out to be surprisingly well prepared for the physical hardships that awaited them. In fact, as, strong a, per as a strong person rejoices to run a race, these Christian soldiers, superbly trained and strong in the faith, yet conditioned to prize humility, looked forward to the tests of the savage wilderness." There's something in the mindset of the Jesuit that I would like to adopt. I'm not sure exactly how to because we are very culturally opposite this. They prized something. 
They looked forward to the tests of the savage wilderness. Do you guys remember the story of uh, Shackleton and the legendary tale of him posting uh, the notice, the ad for who could join him, men wanted for hazardous journey uh, to Antarctica and safe return doubtful. And yet, supposedly, as it could be uh, legend, but that there was so much interest that they were lining up down the streets to participate in the Shackleton adventure. This is the end of the age of discovery in the Shackleton times, where the, the chivalrous notions of going and discovering the grand adventure was so intricate in the idea of manhood that as a result, you're going to see something. You're going to see two things growing. The importance of sharing the gospel and then the love of being a man. And when you're a man, you're gonna do grand adventures. And now we look around and we've lost both of those. <laughs> we've lost the importance of sharing the gospel in a world and we've lost the idea of life as a grand adventure. Let's go out and find something. Let's discover something. Let's find a soul that is lost in the darkest reaches of the earth. You see, for most of us, we're like, I, I can't identify with that at all. We've been groomed differently. European thought throughout, uh, as you're going to see this dark ages into this Renaissance period, is going to be a transformation, and this nobility is going to rise up. This sense of honor is going to be woven into the idea of Christianity. Let's do noble things. What's interesting is actually you can find that in the early formation of the church. The early formation of the church is we're going into every corner of the earth. If it's dark, we're going to shine light there. It's a very different mentality than we have right now. And it's not that it's foreign to us. We know the mentality, but we more esteem it than we do live it or have it. So Peter Marshall is also going to say, like the Franciscan and Dominican orders in Spain, the very totality of the commitment the Jesuits required was appealing to gifted young men of France who had experienced deep conversions to Christ and wanted nothing more than to serve him totally and unreservedly. At this time, it's very interesting, we're going to have the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation is in 1519, and all of this, there's this awakening of missions, and just right now in history, and it's going to be happening right after the time of Columbus's discovery. So you have two things happening. You have a fleshly thing happening over here, and you have a spirit thing happening over here. The fleshly is, I can find gold. I can be rich. So you have this conquistador mindset that for whatever reason is the one thing, when people look back at our history right now, they pick that, and they say, that's our history. Well, I'm not gonna say it's not there. It is there. However, that is Central and South America. You really want to study North America, you need to understand this. The call to missions is actually what shaped our culture. So I'm not going to approve and give a head nod towards the conquistador mindset either. And I have no interest in praising them. I don't want to raise my kids to be like Pizarro or Cortez. I have no interest in applauding it. I think it's wrong. The encomienda system of government that the Spanish had is so evil and wrong, I will gladly condemn that all these years later. Our government does not come out of the encomienda system. 
our government is going to be formed very differently based in the word of God. What is happening in this North American territory is highly different than the conquistador rulership. It is going to be sponsored by this awakening, this stirring within the, see the Catholic church was the only church at the time. So when I say Catholic, it has a tendency to get all the Protestants and evangelicals stirred up. It's like, oh, that's evil. Well, the Catholic church was unhealthy. During the dark ages, it is going to go very off course. And I'm not going to give it any plaudits. I'm not going to even try and give it plaudits now. I'm saying that that was the only church. And so when men are being stirred up, they were the Christians of the time. And I believe that there is always a remnant, there is always a people group that is hungering after Jesus, and we're gonna see that group stirred to action. And you know where they wanna go? They wanna go to this new world. And you're gonna see it in all the different countries. In Spain, you're gonna see it in France, you're gonna see it in uh, Great Britain. You're going to see this stirring up of missions to go into this world and to share the gospel with the savages, with these natives. And it's like, stop right there. You do know that all the men before you have been killed so far. You do know the stories, right? Yeah, I'm, I want that grand adventure. Cuckoo, what's wrong with these people? Or maybe we should stop and say, what's wrong with us? That we think there's something wrong with these people. See, there's something backwards today. We're self-preserving. These guys were willing to do whatever it took to get the gospel to this new world because they're being ruled by darkness. These people are living in, in filth, in fear. They need truth to set them free. Does anyone care? And so as a result, the highest and the best amongst the young people of the day were stirred. It sounds very similar, ironically, when Hudson Taylor came back to England to share about the plight in China. And you're going to see the brightest and the best, the boldest and the brave sign up. If you guys have ever studied the Cambridge Seven and the seven men that are gonna go over with Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd being one of them, these were like, all of England stood back, we're like, that's like our best guys. And they're like, for the sake of the lost, we're willing to expend ourselves. It's like, yeah, more of that. What's happened to that in our world? This is the foundations of our country. I cherish that personally. And that's not because I'm Catholic. I'm not French or Spanish. It has nothing to do with race in this. It has to do with purpose. I support that as a purpose. So the Spanish Franciscans, they brought light to the southwest of America. This is where it's gonna start. You're going to see, I'll show you the map in just a bit. The French Jesuits are going to bring light to the Northeast, so which is why you're going to associate French-Canadian together. You're going to see them come into the Canada region, and they're going to sweep down the Mississippi River to Louisiana, which is going to then begin to define the Louisiana Purchase in the future. And so the French are actually going to be taking that territory, discovered by missionaries. All of this, discovered by missionaries. Missionaries were the explorers of America. They were carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ and making maps and keeping elaborate journals. They were very well-educated men that were trained to do exactly this, to actually greet the people of this uh, new world in such a way that they would encounter Jesus. And I wanna show you their strategy, it's very interesting. 
So I, was, I had a conversation, a few of you guys that are in here were in the conversation yesterday, and it was, a, it was someone from Argentina that made the statement. They said, uh, well, the difference between America and uh, South America is the men that came here were after gold, after finding gold. The ones that came to you were after finding God or uh, sharing God. And so it's like this difference. So I wrote that down. It's just interesting. Men arrived in Central and South America to find gold. Men arrived in North America to share God. And that's a distinction that is very, very important for us to understand. See, I, I am decidedly, I, I can't help it. I'm American, okay? And, but I don't just put on rose-colored glasses. When I see something that's wrong, I'm going to call it wrong. At the same time, I don't like it when something that is good is called wrong. So there is a foundation of something here that is worth preserving and worth fighting to remember because I think it can change our life. America, the country of America, transformed the history of the world. Right now, because of our debauchery and our debaseness and our self-centeredness, we are shaping the world in the opposite direction. We are a leader among nations, and unfortunately, we're leading them over a cliff right now. So as a result, I take our position in this country and our history very, very seriously. So 1534, remember uh, Columbus is going to sail the ocean blue in 1492. So we have to keep our context here. And then we're going to have this wave of missionaries. You're going to have the conquistadors in the early 1500s that are going to come over, but they are going to bring with them, ironically, missionaries. Why? Because they want to teach the Central and South American people uh, to be good Spaniards. And, you know, they don't know how to, conquistadors don't know how to do that, so they're going to have the missionaries do it. So the missionaries come over, and they go north. And they're like, hey, we need to find lost souls. And so what you see is this really interesting, out of evil, God is going to turn it for good. The conquistadors are just bad guys, okay? But the missionaries, there's something altogether different. So this is the Jesuits. Now, 1534, Jacques Cartier, who's a Jesuit missionary, discovers the St. Lawrence River and erects a cross 30 feet high in its gulf. When Cartier encounters the natives, he shares with them the first chapter of the Gospel of John and explains to them Christ's suffering and crucifixion. This is his pattern. Every time he would encounter natives, he would go through the first chapter of John and he would discuss uh, with them, he would share with them Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Obviously, that's a different motivation than a conquistador. If you study conquistadors, you're going to see a completely different behavior pattern. They want control. They're going to take prisoners. They're going to punish anyone who would stand against them so that they could get gold. This is a completely different approach. To associate the two is completely wrong. Samuel de Champlain had an interesting uh, observation. It's, it's fascinating. I wish I could give more of an enunciation today on the state of the natives that were here. Because I think for us, we get it, it's portrayed oftentimes that they're just this innocent band of people that are living perfectly fine and they're healthy and then this group of people is gonna come over and bang them over the head with their thoughts and philosophies and religion. When in actuality, it's just like any mission situation. You have tribes that are living in darkness and they are savage with each other. And there is no moral law to control them. They do not have the light of truth. And so as a result, there's great danger both to come in, but also to live amongst them. So the natives were living like brute beasts, without faith, without law, without religion, without God. That's Samuel de Champlain. The Jesuit approach. The Jesuits went forth singly or in twos in an attitude of lowliness. 
They met the Indians as equals, showed respect for their customs, but didn't hesitate to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That right there is flies in the face. That's, that's historic foundation of the Jesuit approach. Lowliness of mind, to treat them as equals, to not come in and say your customs are just wrong, but to actually introduce them to Jesus Christ while showing respect and humility. I don't know how often that's communicated. In other words, this is actually the foundation of our country, and we're not told this, which is why you see me bringing this up. The Jesuit progression in 1540 through 1640, the Huron tribe, so this is just what they're going to do in a in hundred year period, the Huron tribe around the Georgian Bay, then they're gonna to go to the Algonquins north of Ottawa, then the Abenekis in Maine and Acadia, which is Nova Scotia, then the Iroquois south of the St. Lawrence, and then the Chippewas, the Ojibwas, the Illinois, and other tribes of the upper Great Lakes and Mississippi Valley. So they are going to have a, each of these missionaries is required to do something, and that is keep a journal. And then they're supposed to submit this journal up to their, they, they have a superior I don't remember where they were located. It's like Quebec or so, Canada. And they're supposed to actually visit once a year if they can and go back and actually have a debriefing with the superior. The superior is going to take all their journals and all of the debriefing and is going to write a yearly book, if you could say it in our, our language, and submit that back to France. It's actually going to spread over all of Europe. And this is going to inspire missionaries. I mean, it's going to have such a huge impact on the missions movement because these people are gonna read about the conversions of these natives and how the light of Christ is shining in this new France and they are going to say, I, sign me up. It takes 12 years. Once you catch the vision to be a Jesuit, it's gonna take you 12 years to be trained. It is so rigorous. If you're gonna be prepared for the savage wilderness, it is harder training. It's like training to be a medical doctor today, but harder. In other words, you have to be prepared for the hardest situations, the hardest rigors, and to be able to die well, basically. Share the gospel well, die well. So the Jes they're called relations. Uh, I, was, I was looking at the very first one. I was reading it uh, this morning. They are published in such a way, I forgot which, uh, which university has done it. Some, one university has actually collected all these and uh, translated them. So we actually have access to all of this uh, data, the relations. Uh, the Jesuit missionary journals published yearly. These annual summaries spark the desire for missions amongst the people of France, and actually all of Europe, technically. So this, I, I copied and pasted this from what I read this morning. It was an introduction. This guy is somehow, Reuben Goldthwaites, is somehow the head of the committee that put this together, okay? So... He says, the authors of the journals which form the basis of the relations were for the most part men of trained intellect, acute observers, and practice in the art of keeping records of their experiences. They had left the most highly civilized country of their times to plunge at once uh, into the heart of the American wilderness and attempt to win to the Christian faith the fiercest savages known to history. To gain these savages, it was first necessary to know them intimately, their speech, their habits, their manner of thought, their strong points, and their weak. If you were to study Don Richardson and his, and his uh, steps into Papua New Guinea, it would sound exactly the same. There's no difference. You're dealing with a people group that is hostile to light. They have a very defined culture, but it is ruled by something very different than love. It is ruled by fear. Tribal communities are ruled by fear. 
And as a result, that's why you're going to see ritual sacrifice. It's to appease because there is a power that is controlling. Oftentimes there's going to be a witch doctor type of person in the group that is the key leader that has connection with the dark powers. And then that witch doctor will prescribe how they need to sacrifice to appease. Very common progression in all of tribal history. In other words, it's just sort of, yeah, that's how it works. And so as a result, when you come into these situations, it is a very hostile situation. And the witch doctor, whoever the head is, oftentimes is going to seek to appease the gods to kill this light. And so you're walking into a very dangerous situation. But it's important for us to recognize the basis of our country is decidedly a desire to shine light in the darkness. That's a very interesting heritage that this country has. You know, like the building next door, the lake house, this property we didn't build. Ellerslie didn't build. We're the third owners of it. But the first owners had a desire to use this campus to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that building, every two by four in that building has a scripture reference on it. And the people that wrote the scripture reference on it prayed very specifically that this property would be consecrated for the purpose of the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, I cherish that heritage. Does that make sense? Even though there were uses of the campus in between that may not have been God-glorifying, the original purpose of this was for the sake of Jesus Christ. I cherish that. So introducing Jacques Marquette. Uh, so 1654, he is 17 years old, and he reads one of the Jesuit publications, The Relations. This guy, this is a powerhouse guy. He has every privilege, yet he is going to be stirred, and he's like, I want to be a Jesuit missionary. So he rigorously trains for 12 years to go to New France as a missionary and share the gospel. In, in 1666, he's 29 years old, and he's sent out to New France to head into the savage wilderness and serve the indigenous people of the Americas. In 1668, he founds the mission of Sault Ste. Marie in present-day Michigan, and he discovers the Illinois Indians and labors to win them for Christ. So this is a very general description. What he is known for, though, is typically uh, with uh, Joliet, Louis Joliet, he's going to explore the Mississippi River. Okay, so Mar uh, Marquette and Joliet, if you remember your history training, and I had public school, so I'm not sure if homeschool ever covers it. I, I don't know. I've never been, I've never been personally homeschooled. So, uh, however, that's what he's typically known for. Excerpted from his own journal published in Relations. Just listen to this thought process, okay, as far as a mindset behind a Jesuit missionary. One must not hope that he can avoid crosses in any of our missions, and the best way to live there contentedly is not to fear them. The Illinois are lost sheep that must be sought for among the thickets and woods. The mindset is don't fear the crosses, embrace them. This is our joy. Our joy is to suffer for Jesus. Yes, this is dangerous. Yes, we're in a savage wilderness. But this is our joy. That attitude permeates this 100-year period. This development of our country is based in this entire idea of this is a joy to reach the weak and the lost and the, those caught in darkness. So in 1673, he's commissioned to head south to the Gulf of Mexico. Accompanied by Louis Joliet, he explores the rumored river. Isn't that a cool concept for the Mississippi River? There's a rumored river. 
And so he's going to explore it. And he's not going to reach all the way to Louisiana, but uh, I think he was like 400 and some odd miles short of it, and then they're going to turn around. But he is going to be the first to actually explore the Mississippi River. So here's uh, New France around 1745. So you're going to see the dark blue on the picture is a big chunk of what we know as the United States of America. Yes, it does include a big chunk of Canada as well. And so this is actually what the Jesuits are going to discover. They're going to be reaching the uh, native tribes in this territory. And so you can also see English, which is the red, and the Spanish, which is going to be central in South America. So I want to get to where this affects us, because United States history actually is useless unless there is some benefit to us. I'm only interested in that which aligns itself with the Word of God and can give us a very clear understanding of our life today. Otherwise, it's just information. So the resolve of the early church, we will fear nothing. It is a decision. There are moments in very early church history. The resurrection has happened. The church is beginning to share this gospel. You're going to see amazing revival taking place in Jerusalem. And then you're going to see a backlash. You're going to see a cultural backlash that's going to take place led by the religious system. The religious system almost inevitably is the great opponent of Christianity. It looks similar, but it's very dangerous, which is why you see me saying, we need to know where we stand. And we cannot follow a religious system, we must follow the word of God right now. What does God say? And so you're gonna see this tension when Peter and John are arrested and uh, they're beaten up pretty bad, and they're told that they, they're commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. These guys are going to basically respond by saying, it is better that we obey God than man. And they're going to defy the, the law of the day, which is now, they're, now they're illegals. Everything they're doing is illegal. But this is going to cause a stir and a shaking, a fear in and amongst the body of Christ. And so they're going to gather together to pray, Acts 4, Room shaken again, just like in Acts 2, and they're going to be filled with the spirit of boldness. The early church, in its foundations, is going to feel just like we feel. In the natural man, this goes against our grain. But the spiritual man is a carrier of courage and boldness, and I'm just going to give you a great word to title it, fearlessness. We do not fear and I could go through the Bible and just give a message on that, and I could have tremendous, significant backing from Scripture to make the declaration, we as the church of Jesus Christ do not fear. Oh, as, as mortal men and women we do, but we don't live according to our natural pattern. We don't live according to our natural strength. We live according to heavenly strength. And heavenly strength elevates us above cowardice. So the resolve of the early church, we will fear nothing. Now just imagine if we could have the same resolve today. Don't you almost feel like the world has changed almost immediately when a group even this size comes to that landing point and says, yeah, yeah, that's the way I'm gonna live from this day forward. Now, 
You don't just decide mentally. You have to agree spiritually with how this works. We are not, I mean, I, how, I can't tell you how many times I've decided I'm gonna be bold in my life. Deciding to be bold doesn't make you bold. In, in normal life, it can. Like, I'm gonna go pick up that chair. I can go and just pick up the chair. However, when it's a spiritual matter, you cannot perform a supernatural agenda in your life without help. And so when we make vows spiritually, we need to recognize who fulfills them. It's not us. It's God Almighty. Which is why John 15 is important. You must be like a branch that abides in a vine so that that sap can enter into you and bear fruit. Instead of just saying, I will produce that fruit. No, I will abide is what I will do. And I'll let God begin to produce this fruit. But what fruit does he want to produce? Fearlessness, which is technically love, if you want to say it that way. Love has no fear. Love loves and it literally stares into the impossible and it overrules and it's like the trump card of all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. Love triumphs. Isaiah 51, seven and 12. Do not fear the reproach of men, says God, nor be afraid of their insults. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? and of the Son of Man who will be made like grass. Isn't that just great? I like that I, even I, am he who comforts you. One of the ways we could best interpret that is I, even I, am the one that is going to help you do this. I am the one who will give you the strength in the midst of the moment. I am the one who will help you speak when your tongue is stammering inside of your mouth and you can't quite get a grip on your sanity because you're so afraid. I will comfort you in the midst of it. Do not fear that man who will pass away like grass. I am God and I have commissioned you. So here we are in that passage in Acts 4, 28 through 31. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Uh... I hope I didn't forget to copy and paste that. Let's see if it's, no, yeah, I did. Oh, that's terrible. I have, the, I have the scripture reference there from the previous one. I forgot to copy and paste the story of James. James uh, is being led to his execution, and the man who has even betrayed him, the one who gave uh, indication of where he was located and turned him over to the authorities, is in the crowd, but he is going to witness the strength and the confidence and the boldness of James as he's walking to his execution, fearless, happy even. And he is going to be cut to the heart. So the very one that turned him in, that betrayed him, is going to repent and die alongside of James. So the very first apostolic martyr is going to have a companion with him when he dies, and it's the very guy that betrayed him. Because of his lack of fear, it is going to stand out so starkly in the landscape of the times that it is going to stir and cut this guy to the heart. But that's not just this story. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you're going to see story after story after story that the fearlessness of the saints is one of the greatest witnesses they have. They don't fear. Everyone else is trembling. 
Everyone else is afraid of this uh, invisible disease out there, if I'm going to speak in 2020 talk. Christian does not fear. Why would we fear? We serve the Almighty. We're in his hands. We have a job to do, and that's to share the truth of Jesus Christ in this generation. So the third persecution under Trajan, uh, this is a story of Faustines and Jovita. At the martyrdom of Faustines and Jovita, brothers and citizens of Brescia, their torments were so many and their patience so great. Patience doesn't translate to us now, but that means their ability to endure great hardships with strength. Their patience so great that Colossirius, a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in a kind of ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians, for which he was apprehended and suffered a similar fate. He was killed for saying it. However, the modeling of the Christians throughout history has always been triumphant. This is the fourth persecution under Marcus Aurelius, and Germanicus is the character in this. I just love this statement about Germanicus. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans, pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. We will fear nothing. The Jesuits are going to go into New France, up in the northern Canadian region, come down into Illinois, Michigan area, and then down the, the Mississippi. They fear nothing. This is going to so astound the tribes. The language of, tri of, of a tribe, of a, of, a, of, of a tribal people under darkness is fear. That's what they know. And so they will train themselves to be fearless in battle. That's one of the things that they'll always be working on as tribes. And yet they fear these dark powers. And so though they are extraordinary, I mean far more extraordinary than we are in, in battle, and the spear could be thrown at their head. I mean, in Papua New Guinea, they train their six-year-olds. They'll line them up against a, the wall of one of the huts, and all the men will come in with their spears and throw them at the head of the six-year-old. They'll all miss, and they're training the six-year-old how to be fearless of an incoming spear. Okay. In other words, that's a whole new level of training, right? And so, yeah, they're better with handling spears coming at your head. Christians are better in dealing with powers of darkness. You see, what they tremble at is the powers of darkness. These Jesuits are going to come in, and they do not tremble before the powers of the darkness. And as a result, it stuns the natives. They've never seen anything like this. People that do not fear those great wicked powers. Who are these people? Well, they serve God Almighty. Parisia, which is translated, it's a Greek word for bold, boldness, boldly. And it's, you look at the two words that make it up. Pas and risis, which is all speech. Isn't that interesting for a word, like boldness? All speech? Well, so I'll try and give you this idea of it. All speech, all words. How many words do you have inside of you that you don't speak because of their political incorrectness? Probably quite a few. There's a lot of moments where you could say truth, but to say it would actually cost you. What is boldness? All speech. I don't, I don't even think we like that definition. It's like, whoa, all speech? Unhindered speech, plain and clear communication that is shockingly straightforward and uncomfortably truthful. Or how about this definition? All the commands, all the word. 
Unhindered in living, going, doing, preaching, teaching, and serving, fearless, unafraid, confident, and cheerfully courageous. God asks us to do it. Let's do it, guys. So all commands, all the word. Parisis. So here's the definition from me. No longer impaired by the instinct of human self-preservation. We have it, guys, and political correctness exposes it. There are so many people that are losing their job right now if they dare speak something. And I mean, the, the amount of stories that we're encountering of, I mean, they're so wrong and we know it, but it makes sense. This fits history. This is how history has always worked. When a culture turns dark, it begins to eliminate light. And so if you dare side with the light, you become enemy number one. And so we're seeing it in its, in its beginning forms. But this boldness, we are no longer impaired by the instinct of human self-preservation. We're set free from the shackles of what-ifs that surround the human soul like bands of iron. But what if this happened? But what if this happened? Throw them off. We trust God. The excitement for danger. I don't know how many of you have an excitement for danger. That's sort of a, an uncommon phenomenon in our day and age. Uh, there's people like Bear Grylls that have it. But a lot of the rest of us have lost it. When in actuality, in history, even in Christian history, I mean, you, you look at these missionaries, you know what they loved? They loved the adventure of it. They loved the exploration. They loved the discovery. They loved finding a new people group. Study uh, Jim Elliott and his buddies and the Aka Indians. These guys are so excited to risk their life to reach the Aka Indians. The Aka Indians are the worst, most evil of all the Indians. Why would you be excited that you finally found them? Because, I mean, you can act like, oh, it'd be really good to find the Aka Indians, but then when you find them, you panic. They get excited. They're singing songs. They're jubilant. Yeah, and they died, too, bringing the gospel to the Aka Indians. And they enjoyed every minute of it. What is that? What is that? We can hardly digest it. When, when Jim Elliott and his buddies died in that situation, you're going to see an impact upon missions reawaken in the church of Jesus Christ. It's actually going to stir people to missions. Why would the death of four young men stir people to go, five young men, stir people to go into the savage wilderness? That's how it works, guys. When we allow the Spirit of God to live inside of us and to do the bold things, it actually awakens the church of Jesus Christ around us. Seeing difficulty as opportunity. That's another way of looking at boldness. Fearless and unintimidated, shrugging shoulders at the boasts of pain and suffering. Emptying death of its sting and replacing it with thrill. So in Philippians 1, 27 through 28, Paul is going to refer to this fearlessness as an actual proof to us that we are in the hands of God, that we have salvation. Very interesting statement. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Listen to this and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So if we just stopped right there, it would just be like a command. It would be hanging out there. It's like, guys, don't be terrified by your adversaries. Stand fast in one faith for the gospel. 
However, he's going to add this little caveat onto the end of it, which is very intriguing. He says, they not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. It actually strikes terror in them. This person has something. You're going to see this throughout missions history. When someone comes into a tribe and defies the powers, the spiritual powers, and is not intimidated by them, it actually strikes fear in the, those that resent it, like the witch doctor. He'll go into a terror rage. He'll, he'll be terrified because something is greater than what he's ever understood. And so you're going to see this. It's a sign of perdition, a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. What an interesting statement. And that from God. So I'm just going to give you a few quick uh, missionaries. So Mary Slessor, missionary to Nigeria. She's a little short, red-headed uh, girl. And this, this lady is as bold as they come. So her secret, never fearing the bravado of the enemy. She knows that the enemy is going to have bravado. It's going to have a pomp and a circumstance to it. She is going to not fall for the pomp and circumstance of evil. She doesn't buy it. And she stares it down. And it's extraordinary what happens because of it in and through her missions ventures. Her attitude is this. Do it. Pour it on me. I do not fear you or your threats. So there's this, uh, I, I forgot if it was a witch doctor. I don't remember exactly what the circumstance was. I know she was standing for a, a girl. And she was saying, don't pour hot oil on her. And she walks right in between. And this guy, this big, huge, muscular guy, uh, is basically has hot oil and he's ready to pour it on her. And she's, she basically stands there and stares him down. Do, you know, do it. Pour it on me. Watch what happens. He was so afraid. Here's this huge man. And she's this little teeny redheaded girl. Uh, and he was struck with fear. And actually, that's what proved to the tribe that she had the real thing is because she was fearless. Their language is fear and intimidation and boldness. And when they saw her overcome their strongest warrior with fearlessness, it actually changed the tribe. So Don Richardson, he's a missionary to the cannibals of New Guinea. His secret, he was convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ always prevails, no matter the obstacles, no matter the impossibilities. His attitude, if someone should be afraid, it should be the cannibals, for I am in the service of the Most High God. That's a completely different lens if someone should be afraid, it should be the culture. It should be those that are hosting lives, those that have secrets to cover up. We live in the light. We live in the truth. We're not afraid. Expose us. <laughs> That's fine. We have nothing to hide. However, they do. The righteous are bold as lions. So David Wilkerson, missionary to the gangs of New York City, his secret, he knew that when he obeyed, God himself would go before him. Now, I don't know if you guys remember his quote. His attitude, cut me into a thousand pieces and each one will cry out, I love you. What is it, Nikki Cruz? I'll cut you into a thousand pieces. Yeah, and you cut me into a thousand pieces and every one of those pieces is gonna cry out, I love you, Nikki. It's like fearless. Who behaves this way? This is Christians. Gladys Aylward, missionary to China, her secret, she knew that God surrounded her and that her enemies could not thwart God's purposes in her life. So her attitude, remember when uh, she's stuck in Siberia and she's trying to get to China, she's all alone, she's again a little teeny girl, I think she was under, it was like under, was she 4'10", 4'11", she's this teeny little thing and she's in a hotel all by herself except for the owner of the hotel. 
And the owner of the hotel decides that he's going to take advantage of her. And he has the master key, so he enters her room, and she stares back and basically says, uh, stop right there. He's like, hey, I'm God to you. He says, no, you're not. I serve the living God. You take one step forward, and you'll find out that there is a barrier between you and me, and it's him. And he, the guy tre trembles and, and leaves. I belong to Jesus. Between you and me, he has placed a barrier. Take one more step, and you will see. I like it. Now, I, I made Richard Wormbrandt a missionary. He technically would be classified as pastor in Romania. However, he is in hostile territory where the communists have come in. And if you've ever seen the movie Tortured for Christ, I love how they portray it. He is going to actually go and reach out to the communists. I mean, it's deeply moving to me. And this guy is fearless. He is captured. He had a, a scripture of uh, fearlessness for every day of the year. And he had 366 of them just in case uh, he gets arrested or something happens on leap year. And sure enough, he's arrested on leap year and he has a scripture for it. And he would repeat these scriptures every day and them all memorized. His secret, he considered it ridiculous to fear any situation in, in which Christ was in control. So if you can think of any situation which Christ is not in control, you should fear. But if he's in control of every situation, it's ridiculous then to fear. So he's arrested and he's being threatened. He's prisoner number one in Romania. And they're going to make an example of him and he is going to be turned and he is going to be converted to the communist ideology and now he's going to stand up in front of all the pastors and tell them that he was wrong. And so they're, they're going to break him. They're going to beat him. They're going to give him pain. And his response, feel my pulse. If you notice my heart rate increase, then you will know that there is no God. I don't know how many of us are ready to give that quote. Feel my pulse. I do not fear your threats. I serve God. This is something special, guys, throughout history that we need, and we need it now. So C.T. Studd, a quote from his book, Chocolate Soldiers, every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seductions of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting to the smell of fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives in a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitution. C.T., Oh, I like C.T. Stud. Into the savage wilderness. This is our final slide. The call to a great adventure is still out there. I have a burden, as I know many of you do, to not be passive and to watch the deterioration of our culture just happen before our eyes. If there's a soul in front of you that has fallen to pieces, what do you do? You engage. We just happen to have an entire society that is hanging in the balance right now. And we are alive right now with health right now, with a mouth, with eyes, with hands, with feet right now in history. We are not in history past or in history future. We are right now with a clear assignment from the word of God to rise up and behave as missionaries. And to be willing to go into the savage wilderness to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is our privilege. This is our honor. 
we have been supplied every single thing we need for this task. It starts with our readiness to say yes. If I was going to ask each of you for something practical today, it would be decide yes or no. There's no maybe. In the Christian life, you're either in or you're out. Right now, we need to make some division lines. Are we living as Christians or are we living as pansies? Are we going to actually function as the church or are we just going to esteem things that the church has done in history past or they, they could do if someone got their act together? If you're the only Christian on earth, this would be the same commission. Are you willing to be spent for Jesus Christ who spent himself for you? Are you in or are you out? What Christianity needs right now is a whole bunch of men and women that, says, that say, God, I don't know what you're gonna do with this life and technically it doesn't matter to me what you do. My answer is yes. Take this body, fill it with your Holy Spirit, give me boldness and show me where to go. If you want me in New France amongst the savages, Lord, my answer is yes. If you want me here in Windsor, Colorado amongst the savages, <laughs> my answer is yes. Father, stir us unto action. Don't let us hear this and go right back into a state of lassitude. Lord, lift us out of our softness out of our comforts lift us out of that cozy culture that we crave and put us into action mode lord jesus help us stir us fill us with your holy spirit revive us once again it's in the precious name we pray amen this message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.